How many of you ever watch a movie with your spouse that you probably wouldn't watch otherwise? Um, guys? <clears throat> yeah, a few of us, right? Uh, we have this movie that I, I get roped into watching uh, every other year or so. It's called The Holiday. It's a real cute Christmas movie, you know, chick flick. And uh, it's interesting because right at the beginning of this movie, um, there's this scene where Cameron Diaz is the actress, and she's a famous movie trailer producer in, in L.A. or Hollywood. And, uh, and it's really interesting because she, she frames her life in a movie trailer. And so the first one, I think if I remember the story right, the first one is she's just like conquering it, winning, life's going good, right? And then she has a this, you know, terrible thing with her, uh, her boyfriend. And then like her life is in the tubes and she frames her life as just like, you know, going south and not, not going well at all. And I found that interesting because I think in a sense, we all have the tendency to frame ourselves as the lead character in the movie of our lives, which is all about ourselves. Like in our heads, in our hearts, we, we all have the tendency as human beings to frame the whole story around ourselves, just like in these movie trailers, she's the star of the movie, and whether life's going great, she's killing it, she's conquering, crushing it, or when life's not going great, she's a major loser. That's the way she sees herself, right? And we all have a tendency to live into that, I think. When we're crushing it, when things are going well, we feel like we're on top of the world and the story about us is going really well. Um, when it's not, we tend to have a very low opinion of ourselves. And here, here's the problem with, within our hearts and in our minds, setting ourselves as the, the lead character in the movie that's all about us, is that either story ultimately ends up in disappointment and in emptiness. Because the story is, was never really about us. And when we frame it, in our hearts and in our minds that the story is about us, we set ourselves up for incredible disappointment, incredible emptiness, because that's just not the way that life was intended to be lived. And we see this illustrated in the life of Esther. And you see that almost at the beginning, uh, at, at this point in the story, this this realization that she has about the story and her place in the story. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, we're going to uh, skip some verses here today, but we're going to move through chapter five and six fairly quickly. And to catch you up, if you missed, if you remember last week where we left Queen Esther, there's the threat, Haman, the Agite, uh, the descendant of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of Israel has launched this, this genocidal plot to wipe out the whole nation. Because one man, Mordecai, wouldn't bow down to him. And so instead of uh, just killing the one man, he decides we're going to wipe out the whole nation. Esther has not revealed her identity. She's in the court of the king. She's the queen. She's been chosen. Five years have gone by since she was made queen. And she's never revealed her identity or associated herself publicly with the people of God. She's been living in the lap of luxury. And then in, in the scene we saw last week, she is thrown into the middle of this drama that's unfolding of this terrible plot. And Mordecai says, hey, maybe, just maybe, you've been placed in this exact point where you've been placed in the story for such a time as this. And she has to make a choice. Is she going to just try to continue on in the story, you know, about her, the Queen of England, you know, and the, or England, uh, 
Persia. I've, I've, we've been watching a, do, a docudrama about England, you know. Uh, so anyway, um, Persia, you know, she's just going to keep getting the manis and the patties and the whole thing and, you know, getting the grapes fed to her, living the life of luxury. Or is she going to step out and risk everything to be a character and a lead character, but not in the story about her, in the story about what God is doing in his people. And so she makes a decision. She has a defining moment, and she chooses that she's going to live into a story that's bigger than herself. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. If you remember last week, she calls the people to pray and fast for three days, and she says, I'm going to pray and fast for three days, and we're going to cry out to God for his salvation because there's a law in the kingdom of Persia. If she walks into the presence of the king um, without having been summoned or invited, uh, the penalty is death unless the king extends his scepter to her. The penalty is death. And actually, in archaeology, we see she has a very good reason, a justifiable reason for that fear. They found some reliefs, some carvings of the king of Persia with this soldier dude behind him with a giant axe, right? So it, it, literally, her neck is on the line. Verse 2, when, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. She, she found favor in his eyes. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. And so Esther approached the, and, and touched the tip of the scepter. That was, that was the protocol. The king had favor on her. And this is such a, a beautiful picture of grace, actually, of favor. In fact, Martin Luther saw echoes of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture where the favor of the ruler was extended and her life was spared. And then the king asked, verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be given to you. And this is an expression that was very common, it, it used by ancient royalty, and it just simply meant the king was pleased with you and inclined to be generous towards your request. This is a good thing. This same phrase is used later in the, in the Bible in a lot uh, darker incident. Do you remember what that was? <clears throat> Herod's niece dances for him and then asks um, for the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Herod told, had told her up to half the kingdom. That's what she asked for. John was executed. Well, in this case, favor was extended and, and grace was extended to Esther. Verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now, this is an interesting strategy she uses. Because you would think she just falls down in front of the king and starts crying and, and telling him, spare my life and my people. But she uses um, some tact here. She uses strategy, and it's very interesting. To, to see this kind of transformation in her life. So she says, "Come, just come to the banquet. You and Haman, the other most powerful person in the kingdom, I want you to come. I've prepared this big banquet. It's going to be great. Um, would you come? 
And so the king says, well, absolutely, right? And so he says, hey, go get Haman right away. Let's, let's go as the queen has requested. And so they sit down and they begin to dine together and they're eating and they're drinking. And the king again asks, now, now what is it? What's your request? Like, why would you risk your life to come into my presence? There has to be something. Seriously, half the kingdom. And Esther, in that moment, she says, hey, if I find favor with you, O great king, if it pleases you, O great king, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to another banquet. And this one was pretty good, and they were really enjoying the food and the wine and everything. So she's like, absolutely, right? But she, she, she asked, I just want you to come tomorrow, and then I'll tell you my request. Very interesting. She's, she's using strategy, right? She's, she's, she, there's this transformation of her, in her character from someone who seems to just uh, go with the flow and respond to life as it happens to her. And, and in this chapter, you see her actually initiating and putting a plan into action. And it's a very intriguing plan. Like, why? Why is she doing this? Well, maybe she's responding to the prompt of, prompting of God. Maybe God laid something on her heart during this time of fasting. I, I mean, we don't really know. But you would think in that first banquet she would have, she would have you know, laid out her request. You, you would think that she would have, you know, kind of laid it all on the line. Maybe she was planning to. Maybe there was just this check inside her spirit. And she went, time out not quite ready yet. We don't really know. But because of what happens next, we know God's hand was in this. And the seeming, what's going to happen next is a seemingly unrelated event, but it plays such an important part in the story. And the effect of what she does here is to, to raise the suspense, right? She, she's building relationship and rapport with the king and with Haman. Can you imagine the composure to dine with this hated enemy who, who has just on a whim decided to wipe out your whole people? She, she's, I mean, she shows incredible character and composure in this moment. She uses a, a, a delay tactic, and the effect is it raises the suspense. And what you're going to see is, in fact, this is God's providence. God seems to be working behind the scenes because the event that happens next um, is very unexpected. I, I bet you have something in your life where you look back on and you went, I just in that moment, um, actually, it'd be fun to do a little show of hands. How many of you, uh, you know, you, you had a situation you're in where you just felt a check in your spirit or you felt maybe God was doing, leading you in a way you couldn't really explain it, but you, you changed courses and you find out later it was something fairly significant. Yeah, quite a few in the room. I bet this is a story. Uh, it'd be really fun to hear your stories, actually. Um, I, I remember... There were some things as I look back, like when we were first starting the church and when we had decided, hey, we're, we're going to go full time with this and we're going to launch a Sunday service. We were only like 35 people on a Saturday night, maybe 50 on a really good night, right? We, when we served food, chili, they'd come out, right? <laughs> and I remember we, we said, we're launching full time. We're starting a, a Sunday morning service. And I just felt this thing in my spirit because you know, all of the manuals, you know, 
people ask you how people ask you how do you plant a church? I'm like, I don't know. Don't do it like we did because we did everything wrong. But it seems like God was in it. Because it would have just made sense to put all our eggs in the basket. We didn't know if anybody was going to come to Sundays, except for a handful of people, and, and, and cancel Saturday. And as I look back, I just knew that wasn't the right thing to do. I mean, it's kind of hard to, to put, your, like, put a finger on and go, this is why. But I just knew. And, and in those first couple of years, it was really hard to keep doing two services as a small church plant right from the very beginning. But I knew that that's what we were supposed to do. And it's really interesting, this weird thing um, that still to this day, I'm like, I think, God, I think that was you. This is such, such a weird thing. Uh, but during those first couple of years, we had all these families with twins that started coming, like an abnormal amount. And we're like, what's going on with here? And, and I think, like I say, I think, and at the time, as I, I recall, I think it was these little confirmations, hey, keep going with this Saturday, Sunday thing. I don't know, but that's what I felt at the time. And as I look back, here's the thing. As I look back, that has been one of the most significant decisions. And I look back and I I say, wow, I'm so glad we did that. And it was just that thing. And as you learn to respond to the Holy Spirit and listen to the voice of God in your life, you will experience things like that where you're not sure why, but you just have a strong sense that God is leading you in a way. And you may not know or find out until five years later. Sometimes you won't know or find out until eternity, until we're in heaven, right? But sometimes you'll look back in five or ten years and go, oh, now it makes sense. And I don't know why, but... Esther, in this moment, she, she pauses and she goes, come back tomorrow. And then I'll lay my request on you. And so they scheduled the next banquet for tomorrow. Even better food, like filet mignon. They had ribeyes today. Tomorrow it's filet mignon and lobsters. Um, that would have been my menu choice. Anyway, all right. In verse 9, and so Haman went out on that day happy and in high spirits. He just got to go to a private banquet with the king and the queen. He's the dude that is so important now that he's getting invited like the private invitations to events. And he's feeling really good about himself. The the story of his life, like him as the lead character in the story of his life, as this rich, powerful dude in the kingdom just got better. And like the trailer is going in his mind and he's thinking about all this, right? The music is playing in his head. He's happy. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Ruined his day. As good as everything had been going, he sees this guy who does not, you know, offer him the respect he feels he's due, and it just destroys his day. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So he runs in home. He, and then the story says he gathers up his, his, uh, his wife and his closest friends there, and he tells them, basically has a, a session, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty great, aren't I? I'm like, oh, yeah, you're great, Haman. I, I mean, I have a ton of wealth. I have all this prestige. I am, you know, the second in charge in the kingdom. I'm pretty great. I'm kind of all that, aren't I? Oh, yeah, man, you are all that. This is how the story, I'm, I'm kind of adding some details, but this is how the story goes, right? And then he goes, yeah, and I even got invited to these banquets, just me with the king and queen. How cool. I'm all that. You're all that. But, but, here's what he says in the midst of that. But all this gives me no 
satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. And see, here's the thing. A person of great pride cannot be content. Because no matter how high you get in life, there's always somebody that's higher, right? No matter how much prestige you get, there's always somebody with more prestige. No matter how respected you feel, there's always somebody who doesn't give you the respect you feel is due. No matter how much stuff you have, there's always that new shiny thing. And if you're trying to find your your sense of self-worth and satisfaction in the story of your life where you're the lead character and the star going really well and on this constant, like, you know, up and to the right chart of success and prosperity and all these things. Um, And that's where you're trying to draw your sense of self and accomplishment from. It will lead you to a constant sense of discontent because it's a constant treadmill. And even when you get where you always wanted to be, as soon as you get there, so many times you look up and you go, eh, is this what I wanted? Is this what I, is this what I, you know, I thought this would bring fulfillment? This next season, this next, you know, this relationship, this next career move, this next shiny object, whatever the thing is, this upgrade. And when it's motivated by a sense of pride with with putting those things in a place where we place self-worth and value and draw our feeling of accomplishment from that, it always, always disappoints. And Haman's in this place where his pride, because he, he comes out just so happy and all of a sudden just that one person ruins his day. Maybe you have that one person in your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, an extended family member. And everything can be going great, but their opinion of you means so much that it can just shift in an instant. Verse 14. So here's his, his wife and friend's advice. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it, then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had a pole set up. 75-foot-high pole. Now, I don't know the details of this, and I don't quite frankly want to think about the um, impaling Not a pleasant way to die and meant to shame him. And so Mordecai, or Haman, loves this idea. Yeah, great idea. He calls his men together. They set up this giant pole, and he goes to sleep thinking tomorrow's going to be a great day. But (laughs) he forgets some real truths like it says in the Proverbs, that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And this, this is one of the primary examples of this in Scripture. The principle, be careful what you plan for others because so many times it comes back on you. Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. See, pride that leads you into decisions like this, 
pride is so dangerous. But God's working behind the scenes. And remember Esther as she steps out with courage and boldness, not knowing if, her, if she will lose her life in that moment. See, in Haman's, in Haman's story, the story is all about him. It's all about his success. It's all about his becoming greater and greater and, and his gaining of the respect of everyone, you know, even if he has to kill them to get it. The story's about him. He's the lead character in the story of life that's all about him. Now, see, Esther is in this place. We get this impression in Esther, as, as her character grows, that she's just kind of in this place. Life's just sort of happening to her, and all of a sudden, she's thrown into the Bachelor, Sousa-style competition. She's super beautiful. She gets chosen as queen. And now she's living in the life of luxury. The story of her life just got better and she's in luxury, and all of a sudden, she's thrown into this, this, this thing that was completely out of left field. She had no clue was coming. And in this moment, this is the character you see developing her. She decides she's not going to make the story all about herself and her comfort and her success and her safety. She figures out real quick, I'm in a story that's much bigger than I am. And maybe, just maybe, God has placed me here because he wants me in this scene of the story to be a lead character and to bring what I've been given, the position I've been given, to try to rescue my people, to live for the betterment of others, to live for something bigger than myself, to live with it a perspective that's bigger than here and now. And so she steps up with courage. It's motivated by love for her people. It's motivated by others, not by this just this inward turning focus of it's all about me. She looks around and she goes, I got to do this because it's the right thing to do for the benefit of those around me. And so she throws a banquet. And then for whatever reason, she goes, I'm not going to ask today. It doesn't feel right. Come back tomorrow. Got an even better banquet. So Haman wakes up bright and early that morning thinking, this is going to be a good day. My enemies going to die on a pole, and I'm going to get a banquet with my favorite food and the king and the queen. But somebody was working in the middle of the night. He's a character that actually doesn't, isn't named specifically in this whole book. But the whole story is about him moving behind the scenes. And actually, the, uh, here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, that night, that very night, that king could not sleep. Actually, the Greek translation, the, the, it's called the Septuagint. It, it writes that that night the Lord took sleep away from the king. The Hebrew just reads, that night the king could not sleep. Seeming random. How many of you have these nights occasionally? How many of you have these nights more than you wish? Where you're just like, it's 3 in the morning, and I can't sleep, right? That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles of the record of his reign to be brought in to read to him. In other words, all the official business of the court. And he's reading, they pull up a passage five years back, and he's reading from that. 
In fact, um, when I can't, I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. I found this audiobook. It's called uh, The History of the World. It's like a 50-hour-long audiobook. And it's got this really droll English accent commentator. And so I'll throw that on in a headphone at like 80%, just kind of slow. And somewhere between ancient Sumeria and Egypt, I usually drift off to sleep and works out all right. But sometimes... I'll, it'll get into like an interesting thing. You know, I think I'm up to Greece now and it's like really intriguing and then I can't go back to sleep. Um, so apparently he's got five years of ancient business history being read to him thinking it'll put him back to sleep. But he learns something interesting in there and he learns actually that Mordecai, there's this Jew Mordecai who sits at the gate and he had foiled an assassination plot, a very legitimate one, um, by, by uh, a couple of his officers five years earlier. And in, in ancient Persia, where the culture uh, was so treacherous, it was very important to reward people who faithfully served you and to reward them quickly um, so that they wouldn't turn on you. In fact, this king, the same king, is going to die some years later from an assassination attempt. We know this from history. And so he goes, Mordecai, he rescued me. What did he get? Verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. And the king's like, what? Nothing? We didn't reward this guy? And so he, he, it's early in the morning by this time. Apparently the history's been going on for some time. And it's bright and early in the morning. And he goes, what? Who's in the court? What am, who are my advisors are out there right now? And Haman, bright-eyed, you know, bushy tail, comes in the door all like strutting with the soundtrack to his own, you know, killer success Probably rap, probably like, doom, doom. I, I don't know. Uh, it's just going in the back of his head as he walks through the door, right? And he's strutting in, and, and they go, hey, Haman's here. And he goes, well, get him in here. We got to take care of this problem. Verse 6, when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, in the soundtrack of his mind, he goes, the day just got better. Check this out. He goes, now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? See, he's the star player and the story of his life is all about him. And uh, obviously this is about him. And so Haman stops and he thinks for a minute. He's like, hmm, I can't ask for a promotion. I'm already the number two guy in the kingdom. Um, I can't ask for money because come on, look at all the money I've got. And so he comes up with this great idea. Well, here, here's what we'll do. Why don't you, king, go get one of your royal robes and get one of the royal horses, the ones that you've ridden, you know, with the royal crest, and, and get one of the king's most noble princes, and then you should go out and parade this guy up and down the streets of the capital city here, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man who the king delights in. <laughs> That's a great idea, king. <laughs> just to set this in, in context like for us this would be like you know the president publicly gave you a ride on Air Force One just to show how important you were and how connected right this is what Haman's asking for in verse 10 go at once the king commanded Haman get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. 
This is one of the most like comedic little sections of the whole Bible. And it's so beautiful, right? The, the thing, just the timing. Esther is, she follows this prompting, and we don't know exactly why, but she delays an extra day, and that night, the king just so happens to not be able to sleep and so happens to turn back to the history, five years old. And the story, the arc of the story is shifted in a moment. So Haman, can you imagine his face? Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I could just see him, like, hanging his head, like, as he sort of mumbles this out. This is what, you know. Can you see the guy? It's just so full of shame. It's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? Pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Verse 12, afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. <laughs> Running home, just nobody see me. All of a sudden, the soundtrack and the trailer of the story of his life goes very differently. And in spite of having all the power available in the Persian Empire, God is working behind the scenes to thwart this plan. God is ruling history according to the ancient covenant he made with his people at Mount Sinai. And none of Haman's plotting and scheming will thwart that plan. Verse, second half of 13, it says this, his, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, apparently um, he hadn't been real forthright about who this people group was that he was coming against. We know he didn't even tell the king. He just said, there's a certain people group. He says, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, this is like the ominous music starts. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. And next week, we'll see what happened. What happens? No cheating. No reading ahead. Spoiler alert, it goes well, right? See, his, his wife and his advisors, they knew. They had heard of the fame of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of a sudden, with these turn of events, these people who probably would have been very steeped in astrology, they knew, uh-oh, there's something more going on here than just the physical, than just the natural. There's something spiritual at work here. And they recognize, I think this plot is doomed to fail. And what you see in this, in this two chapters of Scripture in, in the book of Esther, this fun story, it's getting fun, right? <laughs> But what you see in this is, is the deliverance of the Jewish people is going to be against all odds. I mean, you look at the power of the Persian Empire stacked against them. 
It, it is not just, God doesn't, you know, Esther doesn't just come, come into the king and, and cry and beg, and the king goes, okay, we'll save you, and, and we'll, we'll, you know, do something, and we'll tell Haman he can't do this, and, and the story goes on. It's, it's not just a resolution. It is a reversal. That's what you see. This is the beginning of a series of reversals where the plot that, that the enemy that Satan has, this is what, you know, Haman and um, Haman's wife and advisors are beginning to see. No, there's, there's a bigger thing. There's a spiritual thing behind this conflict. And you're on the wrong side of history. Remember, Haman, the Agagite, the, the, the relative of the king, um, of the ancient enemy, the very first people that came out against Israel on the way to Mount Sinai. So there's a cosmic battle going on here. And they recognize this. And it's a reversal of the narrative. It's like there's this tension. And it's not, the tension just isn't resolved. It's completely reversed. The event that was intended to destroy the Jews actually results in the opposite, against every reasonable expectation. And see, that's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. The God that reverses the plans of the enemy. See, that's what we celebrate. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we celebrate and we believe in. And every time we take communion and every time we celebrate Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the greatest reversal in the course of history. The reversal of the enemy's plan to steal, to kill, and destroy eternally. And the God of the universe stepping down in the most unexpected way, coming as a little baby, God in the flesh, to become one of us, to to be tempted and tried with everything we're tempted and tried with, to struggle, to feel pain and heartache, and ultimately to give his life on the cross at a moment where Satan thought he had won the victory. He'd pulled it off. And all the powers of evil and Satan are celebrating. Um, in my discipleship training school outreach lots of years ago, we had this song by Carmen who passed away um, this year. He was, a, he was a contemporary, early contemporary Christian artist back in, you know, the early days of, of Christian music. Um, at least Christian rock, right? Rock, I use that term loosely. He was a very interesting artist. Uh, but I remember on Outreach, we did, this, we did this dance. Anybody remember the champion? If you're older in the room, right? Yeah. So it, it's this fun song, and we did this dance, like drama to this. And the, basically, the end of it is all these, like, you know, you got all these demons crucifying Jesus, nailing him on the cross, and then... What do we know? Three days later, he rises again. And the song ends with, Jesus is the champion. It's pretty epic. People in Thailand really liked it. But see, this is the greatest reversal in the course of history, where all the powers of the enemy thought they had the victory, thought they had crucified the Messiah, and it was done. And three days later, he rose 
from the grave. Paul puts it this way. To understand this reversal. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, or uh, excuse me, Colossians 2.13. He says this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you were not connected to God. You were not in relationship, covenant with God. You were dead in your sins. You were dead just obeying the desires of the fleshly, earthly life. When you were dead, God made you alive with Christ. He didn't just come in and make you a better person. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, in fact, if you think this way, um, there's a good chance you don't understand the gospel because the gospel is you were dead in your sins. There was nothing you could do to find favor and, and, and to please God in your sins. And as you tried to work to earn it, the gospel is God saw you and extended his grace and favor to you in Jesus Christ. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. All those things, all that guilt in your past of those things that you're like, gosh, I wish I hadn't have done that. The answer isn't, okay, I'm just going to try harder this time. The answer is, God, forgive me. I need your grace. And then to embrace that and live that and walk that out, this is the great reversal. Because that stuff, why was nailed to the cross with Jesus, everything past, present, future, that you will sin, that you will do. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the great reversal. And here's what Paul says about this um, reversal and the spiritual cosmic implications of that. He says he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. You see, what seemed like the greatest defeat in history, God, through the greatest reversal, turns into his greatest work of redemption for you and for me. And and he's raised from the dead three days later, on the third day. Remember where we started? On the third day? The third day? That's significant. Because ancient rabbis saw the third day as a significant time of God's redemption. They saw it in Jonah and all these Old Testament stories, and they wrote what's called a midrash on that on this passage in Esther, the third day, and about God's redemption for his people. And on the third day, the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest reversal in the course of eternity and history, and the universe was accomplished for you and for me. That's what we celebrate. The powers of the enemy were overcome. The war is won. And yet, here's what you need to realize today. The war is won, and you'll see this in, uh, that at this point, God shifts. There's, there's a shift. The reversal begins, and the rest of Esther will be this series of reversals where God will shift the course of everything, and yet they have to still walk it out. The people of God still have to, um, we'll see in chapters 9 and 10, defend themselves. 
there's still a battle that's taking place. There's not a passivity now. Oh, God took care of it all. And this is the same place we find ourselves in when it comes to our relationship with God and walking out his love, his purposes in this world, living life in this world. The, the war is won. He accomplished it. He, he made a public spectacle out of the enemy. The great reversal has begun, and the great reversal will be fully accomplished when he returns. And yet right now, the battle still continues. In fact, that's why Paul, in another section, he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. People aren't the enemy. Oh, sometimes people are motivated, like Haman, people are motivated and, and um, people are influenced by the enemy and make lousy decisions, but ultimately there's an enemy beyond what we see, which is why we're called to pray for our enemies, to bless those who curse us. People aren't the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. You know, World War, uh, a good way to understand this, um, there's a phrase called the now and the not yet, made, made uh, famous by a theologian named Ladd, which is basically between Jesus' first coming and making a public spectacle of the, the powers of the enemy and, and the kingdom of God being um, introduced and initiated on this earth, and it continues to grow through every heart that embraces Jesus, yet we're in a battle, and the kingdom does not come in its fullness until Jesus returns, when the great reversal is completed. And we live in this tension, the age between the ages. A great way to understand it right now um, is to think of World War II. It was the deadliest conflict in history. There was about 60 million casualties. And at the end of World War II, there was a battle fought called the Battle of the Bulge. And it was, a, it was a very key point in the, in the war because really it was Hitler's last stand in Europe. It was his last attempt to stop the progress of the Allies in Europe. After the Battle of the Bulge, the war was essentially over. France had been liberated. Uh, the Russians were pressing in from the Eastern Front. And the Germans were on the run. But yet, um, e even though for all intents and purposes, the war was won after the Battle of the Bulge. The victory was assured. Hitler hung on, and Hitler fought to the bitter end and took many, many lives with him. It was a bloody battle, and it's this great picture of where we're at. Jesus has won the war, and yet we're in this season where the battle is still very real, and the enemy wants to Take out as many people as he can take out. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why Paul says the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities in the heavens. But here's the good news. Jesus said this. He gathers his disciples together on a hot, dusty hill. And he says, I, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me ask you a question. Are gates offensive or defensive measures? This is an easy question. You should sit on the front row. You'd know the answer. Defensive. See, his point Jesus says, as, as I'm raising up my church, literally my ecclesia, my gathering, my assembly, the congregation, 
those, my people on this planet. To bring the love and the good news of Jesus. To carry the battle to the enemy. As you share the love and the good news of Jesus, and you pray and you lean in and you listen to the Holy Spirit and you stand up for what's right and you stand up for those that cannot stand up for themselves and you figure out and you reset your life that the story of my life is not just me as the leading character in the story that's about me. I'm just a B character in the story. Maybe I get to play a lead scene in this scene over here because God wants to use me in that scene. But I'm going to play it well, understanding that my life is just a portion. My life is just a scene in the bigger story of what God wants to accomplish in bringing the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child on this planet. Every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And see, it's only when you set your life and frame your life in in the context of that bigger picture that it begins to make sense. As long as you have you as the lead character and the story that's about you, you're going to just find yourself disillusioned and disappointed because life will constantly disappoint you. My prayer for you today is that God would reorient your heart if that's where you've been living. And set your life on a trajectory to make a significant impact for his kingdom and in the spiritual battle that we're in. Would you stand? I'm just going to close by praying for you. And if there's anyone in the room or joining us online that, that you haven't committed your life to Jesus and accepted his grace... Embrace the grace that he's offering to you and the forgiveness. You can do that today. And you can start, you can switch teams because you've been playing for the wrong team. You can get on the right side of the story and live your life into the real story that's going on. And you just need to simply, you can say it in your own words. Sometimes I, I, I give you a prayer to repeat. But you can just cry out to God and acknowledge that you're a sinner and you can't make it to him on your own. And I ask him for his grace and his forgiveness. Say that you believe in Jesus, who is the Son of God, who died and rose again. And ask him to welcome you into his family. And if you pray that, sincerely, you're his. And Lord, for all my other friends, I just ask right now. The Lord, uh, some of them, they, they feel very um, acutely the battle they're in because they have stepped up. They've stepped out for your kingdom. They've made the story about you, and right now they are feeling some of the attacks of the enemy in their life. I pray for strength. I pray for the ability to put on your armor, to trust in you, to cry out to you, to keep the story in their heart and mind about you. And, Lord, for that person in the room that they're, they've been living into the wrong story, and that's just their, their little life, their little kingdom, would you reorient their life today and let them make the decision to get over their pride, to get over the things, to, to allow you, Holy Spirit, to, to move in their life, to conquer the fear that's holding them back, the fear of looking strange or different, the fear of um, 
losing something. And they would begin to truly live their lives for your kingdom, for your glory. And they would be able to look back and went, wow, God allowed me to play that little cameo role in part of his bigger story. Thank you, Lord. Pray your blessing over my friends here. In Jesus' name, amen.